there comes a time in every podcast network's existence where the envelope that they push must be pushed farther. The game that they play must be changed. The future of the North-South Connection changes now. In an attempt to shake up the world of wrestling podcasts, the staff of the North-South Connection will share with their loyalist of listeners their most private thoughts and opinions on life, professional wrestling, and beyond. Live from a week's worth of voice memos from a private messenger chat, it's Noso's Group Chat Confidential. separated Last night during Survivor Series, I was thinking that some of this bloodline stuff has been so intense and involved that it reminds me a lot of Raven and ECW. And not so much mind control as a thing that Raven did, but uh, more in like the loyalty um, that Roman commands much the same way that Raven did. You know, everything I hear about it, so it's what I find this gimmick well, not gimmick when I find the storylines at its best is when it's internal. Like I love the Jey Uso stuff at the beginning, and I love the Sami Zayn stuff now and the conflict within. And it's a really interesting angle in that I feel it's something. I think the comparison to Raven is astute. Um, it's like kind of what the NWO tried to do when they had tension between them, but they were like lacking that subtlety. And it makes me think that the only the only conclusion to this in terms of who beats Roman, it kind of feels like I always thought it was Cody, you know, because it comes back from injury, but it really kind of feels like it has to end at the hands of Jey Uso or Sami Zayn. Like, just the feud is so good when it's internal. I don't know, when it finally comes to an end, I think it's got to come from those seeds. Well, who should beat Roman Reigns is an interesting question for sure. Of course, he's a two champ, so you could split him and you could beat him twice. Preferably the first one without a pin and whatever gimmick they do, ladder or whatever. You know, he's not pinned. So for that, it should be Cody or even like a retread like a Rollins or a KO or even a fucking Drew. Could be possibilities there too. Sammy. Could be a possibility for that lane two for you know just the WWE title scene. Um, the Rock, I guess, if they wanted to beat him at Mania, but I doubt it. Austin would be fun, but they're not going to beat him. And then he has still meat on the bones with like retreads from his past, like Styles, Lashley, and Sheamus. Not necessarily Lashley from his past, but you know that would be, that's a fresh matchup for him as a world champ. And then you have the Universal, where he should hold it longer. It's, what, 800 days almost now, if not plus that. That should be some... That's where he should be defeated and be a big moment and be a crowning moment. You know, Cody stating that he wanted the WWE side of the title should kind of 
keep him out of that. Beating the universal, be having him lose the universal it would be more meaningful, and I don't think Cody would live up to that. A, a retread would be horrendous, like Rollins, KO, or Drew. No, thank you. He shouldn't. None of the guys I just mentioned before should beat him. So really, it comes down to a few wild cards. Sammy would be electric. Um, Jay, like you mentioned, I don't know what happens post. Jay defeating Roman. I don't know. He just, I think Jimmy weighs him down. Um, so they would need to get creative there. He's obviously a baby face if he beats Roman. Um, you know, what is his legs as a baby face? So it's the moment, it's the build to be Jay, but what is necessarily the outcome is, you know, a little concerning there. It would have to kind of convince me a little bit there, but I would definitely be for it and I, I would trust them creatively. I just don't know if Jay has the legs, the personality. Um, just kind of everything to be that top guy because your next top guy is a poker chip to, you know, to being the next guy that poker chip could be beating Roman for the universal. A few other wild cards include breaker and Austin theory. Actually, you know, there's a story there. He seems to be behind him. They got rid of the fluff, you know, People go in, obviously characters go in stages and this is, you know, money in the veins, money in the bank, the Vince stuff. That's a stage. That's an introduction. So now, you know, he's changed his tone. He's been pretty decent. He was really good at Survivor Series. He's been good on Raw. Um, He does have depth and chops to him. So uh, that's an interesting wild card. Breaker, they seem to love him. He seems to be the next guy. Um, The name doesn't bother me. So, I don't know. I'm, I think I put my uh, money on those three or four if you want to include Sammy because Sammy would be awesome. Sammy, Jay, Breaker, or Theory for the universal side of things. WWE side of things probably should be Cody if you want to go KO or any of the four I mentioned before and then just hold the universal until you are steadfast on a guy that you're 100% no. I like if they keep the titles unified. Uh, and just move forward as one world title because when that title when that universal title is in anybody else's hands other than Roman Reigns uh, it's cursed it's just a a cursed title Uh, it's bad matches it's bad booking it's people getting hurt Um, it's only been good when Roman has it so I I would like to see them keep them together and as far as like who's going to beat Roman uh, I don't even want to entertain the idea of him losing until possibly Wrestlemania 40 um, and I think the person to do it is Solo Sokoa. And that's because, like Aaron was saying, the bloodline is best when it's internal strife uh, and, and it's kind of existing. The storylines are existing within themselves. Um, that, that's when it seems to be at its best with the storytelling. So uh, Solo Sokoa was sent there by the elders. He's the enforcer. He's the Chuck Liddell to Roman Reigns, Tito Ortiz. Uh, I, I think it has to end up with those two. Uh, in another year's time or so, uh, facing off at WrestleMania. And you get everything that everybody wants when one of these streaks or big reigns happens. You get somebody new being put over, but somebody who's trustworthy. He has the family heritage, the lineage. Uh, his work has been really good so far. Uh, he's, he's young, but he's not uh, like super wet behind the ears. Uh, he's not green by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I think Solo Sokoa is the perfect dude to uh, defeat the big dog, but I don't even want to think about it for another like two years. The more I think about it, the more I really would love to see it be Jay Uso as the man to finally take off Roman. 
I mean, if you think about it, the entire bloodline stuff really started through Jay during the pandemic times. Uh, the first real great moment of the bloodline was that Hell in a Cell match that was super great for absolutely no reason. Um, and I think that that could be, I think that might be the best story moving forward. I don't think they can go wrong unless they go outside of the bloodline, as mentioned by you know, Aaron and Marcus, but man, I'm just, I love that we have something really great to sink our teeth into. And I think that this is something that's going to stand up beyond current time as, as being something that's looked back upon as being a really, really great run. Um, especially in an era in which super long runs like this don't have the chance to play out. I mean, what by the time by the time this gets released to the public it's something that's going to be what double the reign of CM Punk and we thought that that Punk's reign was going to be unmatched um this is this is insane and in all the right ways WWE say, looking just at star power, Jeff Hardy or Rey Mysterio? Jeff Harvey. We don't have to get into this if you don't want to, but in regards to that question about star power with Rey and Jeff, I think I'm going to go Rey. Is that weird? Um, does Jeff's out of ring stuff hurt his star power eventually? It's kind of weird because I feel like Jeff's highest of highs is way higher than Ray's highest of highs. But Jeff's lowest of lows is leaps and bounds lower than Ray. Ray is a consistent level of stardom ever since debuting on SmackDown. But Jeff Hardy height of powers is insane. Men, women, and children, he had that pocket for... Right near the end of when he left in 2002 and then his world title run when he came back. Um, Jeff was the guy. It's tough to say. Look, black people love the Hardy Boys, so my answer is Jeff Hardy every day. Is it because he's from the South, really? I don't think so. I mean, Rey Mysterio is from the South, too. And for every uh, run-in with the law that Jeff Hardy has... Uh, Rey Mysterio has a knee surgery to match that time away from the ring. So I think um, while those things are drastically different, um, if we're just comparing time away from the ring, um, I would think that they're both equal. I think Marcus is making my point that that Jeff Hardy has more jump up, stand out moments that people remember. Rey's biggest moment is winning the Royal Rumble and then going on to win at WrestleMania, but part of that is tied to the death of Eddie Guerrero. But consistently, Ray was a top player, even at the beginning. Like, 
he made the cruiserweight division something worth watching on SmackDown. And that carried through. I never saw Jeff Hardy being called the greatest of all time like Rey Mysterio has been saying. Like, I understand that there's marketing behind that and things like that. But I know you better than a lot of these other people do. You have a big slant against Rey Mysterio for the majority of his WWE career because they labeled him as an underdog, but he never lost. So to you, he's not an underdog. So you discredit Rey Mysterio more than you would anyone else. And you boost up Jeff Hardy because you love the Hardy Boys. I will I will seek you out, Mr. Marcus. I will seek you out. Mr. Tim, why did you have to bring Sasha Banks' dad into this? I feel that bringing up Eddie Guerrero is a very logical line to draw when you're talking about the star power of uh, Rey Mysterio. Much like that one episode of Power Rangers where Tommy gives his Green Ranger shield to Zack, the Black Ranger, to fight off uh, the villains for even a day. As As the untimely passing of Eddie Guerrero goes on, all of that Latino heat gets passed, shoved into the direction of two people, Rey Mysterio and Batista. Batista didn't need it. Rey Mysterio absolutely did. And that's why Rey Mysterio goes 62 minutes and 12 seconds in the Royal Rumble. And that's why he's got POD playing him out at WrestleMania. And we're not going to talk about him throwing up during the Royal Rumble, even though the Peacock Network has edited that out. I remember. I think in the end, and this is just my opinion, obviously, Jeff Hardy was a a guy who was a tag wrestler and a mid-carder who became a legitimate main eventer and a legitimate top guy for a while. Whereas Ray was a mid-carder who was presented as a main event guy and we were told he was a main event guy but never felt like a main event guy. So in the end, Jeff Hardy is a legit main eventer and Rey Mysterio is pretending to be a main eventer. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't, I, I don't say that Rey Mysterio sucks or anything because of that. I just never believed him as a main eventer. I never believed him as a world champion. Um, and he didn't need to be. He has a niche. And I think he's probably better off if he stays in his niche. Another point of contention that we ought to think about too is timelines. You know, Jeff Hardy, all of his big memories, all of his big or the majority of his big moments are very early on in his not just WWE career, but his career in general. And Rey Mysterio has his entire WCW catalog that doesn't get counted for anything in GWWE. So I think part of Rey's stock comes from the cachet he had as being like one of the most perpetually over guys in WCW. Um, But it just doesn't translate the same way when we're looking at the raw data of GWWE. As one of the biggest WCW marks in the room, I'm glad someone brought up WCW because I question if you're a fan who didn't see a lot of Ray's body of work in WCW. And let's face it, there's a lot of people who probably haven't. The promotion has been dead for over 20 years. We're all old. 
is what I'm saying. But if you haven't seen that, then you probably haven't seen his best in-ring work. So if all you're really going by is his WWE run, yes, he was brought in as a big deal. Yes, he was presented as a star. But compared to Jeff Hardy, like who's had the better matches? I probably would give it to Hardy. And that's kind of difficult for me to say, again, as that WCW mark, and as a guy who thinks Ray did his best work before he even came to WWE, but that may be the reality of the situation. My fellow Tim, your WCW love is not alone. You have a another member of the House of the Purple and the Gold. Forever Wildcat Willie. I say we're old, but still... 10 years younger than the average WWE viewer, according to their uh, strongest demographic, going by the Nielsen ratings, I believe. But uh, that may get us on a different topic altogether. I'm also glad that the Tim brand remains strong with the Tim for Tim terrific takes here in this chat. But anyway, um, point being, I, I know this whole question is about more than just the matches, obviously, but... Uh, Getting back to the comparison between Jeff and Ray, uh, I also think you have to take into account you can legitimately look at Jeff Hardy as like a homemade, a homegrown WWE talent. I mean, I know there's the Omega stuff, but I mean, who's really counting that? And maybe that counts for a lot more than Ray as this dude who comes in, who has been inactive for several years, makes a big splash, but kind of just settles into that groove as an upper mid-card main eventer, upper mid-carder, occasional main eventer, I should say, whereas Jeff kind of had that consistent climb. I think that stands out in a lot of people's minds, especially like WWE big-time fans. Yeah, going back to the point of the WCW inclusion, like Jeff Hardy's meteoric rise, or his not meteoric rise, but his gradual rise and being called this death-defying daredevil is part of the reason why we remember so much of his stuff in WWE because he has to be the guy who gets speared off the or speared from the top of the ladder and the guy who has to jump off the crazy stuff and t to have his name made where Rey Mysterio did all his crazy lucha in WCW and ECW for the tape traders. So by the time Rey Mysterio gets to WWE, He's already done all his prove-it stuff. It's now I'm making a name off of that prove-it stuff. Kind of like when Jeff Hardy left WWE and went to TNA. And I think that's what I'm ultimately grappling with and trying to answer this question. You know, when, when Jeff and, and Ray are so competitive across so many different categories... The one variable, the one dimension Jeff can't really compete on is that Ray is just that that worldly athlete. And I'm not sure how much difference that should make. I'm, I'm not sure how important that is today, especially like in a post-WCW, post-territories world. But the fact is they are still both active or semi-active wrestlers. So I, I think we have to take it into consideration. So... That, for me, is why I think my instinct is to lean Rey Mysterio as the bigger star in all of wrestling. You know, we can say maybe Jeff is the bigger WWE star, and that's fine, but 
I have to give it to Ray, ultimately. And that may just be my WCW bias talking, admittedly. Yeah, I'm definitely with Tim here, Tim Capel. I think if you look worldwide at Ray and when he started as just like a skinny uh, teenager that was doing crazy moves and triple A, and then think about like him running through like the second Super J Cup, his ECW run, his WCW run, and then his WWE run. To me, it's it's easy to see how he did progress and did become a bona fide main eventer. And I do think he has more staying power, uh, you know, short-term example. But I think even now, like, he's certainly more marketable than Hardy. And we're 30 years uh, into his career at this point, which is pretty astounding. So, so I do see Ray winning almost any argument except that Hardy may have had a hotter stretch for a very brief time in WWE. And I think that's where it all boils down to is that the crux of this conversation was all around GWWE. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where people could look at the list and they, they might see a Jeff Hardy over a Rey Mysterio and have a, a sense of outrage but that may be people who don't understand, like to your point, Chad, like the stuff in AAA, the stuff in the Super J Cup, the stuff in WCW, the ECW stint. Um, people don't, I mean, maybe maybe the audience that we look at for GWWE will totally get that. But at a microcosm level, just like people fetch and moan about... Um, the PWI 500 being an inexact science and like how is Vikingo in the top 10 of the PWI 500 when nobody watches triple A and I'm like, there's a bunch of people that do. It's just not us. It's not the mainstream. It's um, so in, is it wrong to kind of encapsulate all of it by saying we're both right in that Ray is the bigger star, but in regards to GWWE, the edge might go to Jeff Hardy specifically for WWE versus WWE and not career versus career. All right, cool. Thanks for the feedback there. Um, in a GWWE world, I would give the slight edge to Hardy just off the main event run and his peak being so high, even though it didn't last so long, and Ray's main event run being really due to Eddie and kind of fizzling out rather than quicker than it lasted. So, but overall, great star power between both those guys, just including DWWE. I would go tight, tight window, Hardy above. Next question, Charisma, AJ Styles versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, GWWE. Is it fair to say wash? Like, neither Steamboat nor Styles to me just scream Charisma. I'd give the slight edge to Steamboat because he breathed fire at the end, maybe? This is tough. I mean, Ricky Steamboat, 
great baby face, of course. He breathed fire. He came to the ring with a giant lizard or whatever, like, one time. Uh, AJ Styles has a little, like, foot dance he does when he comes out and the hoodie that people like. And he's the first WWE superstar to say, that's Cat. I gotta think about this one. I think it's AJ Styles, but not in a landslide. I'm gonna go AJ. First of all, I've never seen one episode of Power Rangers, so I don't know what the shields and the swords have to do with Jeff Hardy and Rey Mysterio. I guess I'll need a dissertation on that at some point. I I, I don't know. I had Ray higher in 2017. I think that may change this time. I'm, but I'm I'm just a Hardy's mark, so it's gonna play different for me. Uh, I think when you look at the body of WF work. I think I would just rather watch Jeff Hardy's output than Ray's. But if you're including everything, like we kind of have been delving into, it's clearly Ray. I mean, because his WCW stuff would rank first for me of the three. So if you were kind of ranking that, and then Jeff's WWF, and then Ray's WWF, I think that's kind of how it would go. But like WrestleMania 33, that moment to me is bigger than any moment Ray had. And I don't even know that ranks on Jeff's moments list. So... It depends on the criteria of the moment for GWE. If you're looking at jump-up moments, I think Hardy has him whipped. Uh, that's just me. I, I would say, you know, AJ versus Steamboat Charisma. Again, like, really big AJ fan, but I don't think he has the connection to the fans that Ricky Steamboat had. Steamboat once at an angle where he couldn't talk. It was like the most over angle either of them have ever had anywhere. So I think Steamboat's connection and charisma with with the fans outweighs AJ. Yeah, I'm not trying to be contentious here, but to me, the comparison between AJ and Steamboat in terms of charisma is almost insane. Like AJ's strength and where he garners all of his his overness really is from incredible in-ring work, right? Not that he's not charismatic, but it's not his, it's not his um, forte. Whereas Steamboat is legitimately one of the greatest baby faces of all time. Um, and you don't get there without oozing charisma. And like JT said, you know, the angle where he doesn't talk, it's huge. Just everything involving him makes people care. And that all comes from charisma. He's huge, huge, huge. I think where Steamboat gets dinged is on a bunch of other things, but on, on charisma, he's he's very much near the top. AJ does have him beat in strength of Larnix, 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 Larnix. Ricky Steamboat also has the advantage of uh, being able to go all around the world. Are you saying he's a little flat on charisma? Y'all ain't gonna talk bad about Uncle Alan like this. Y'all stop. You're saying Styles' favorite song is Kyrie by Mr. Mister? Seems to have some stuff in common. We are we are literally two episodes into this thing, and I'm about to leave. Y'all need to stop picking on Uncle Allen, okay? Y'all pick somebody else? Uh, Charisma, uh, Brooklyn Brawler, or, um, shoot, Dagon, um, shit, um. Or Steve Lombardi. Exactly. Perfect. Look, Tim, I'm going to level with you. I think that AJ has a lot of smoothness, you know. He's, you know, very, I don't know, horizontal sometimes. But 
Steamboat is just, you know, mountain peaks ahead of him in terms of charisma. He just, you know, is just fully well-rounded. I actually think AJ is underrated charisma-wise. Just his mannerisms in an entrance, his mannerisms in ring, especially as a heel wrestler. You, you think back to the two Roman in the two or three Cena matches, just his mannerisms and his actions and his, oh, like his pit bull, like he was a pit bull in those matches. And due to mannerisms and charisma, he was able to be an effective heel wrestler for his size, yada, yada, yada. Garner the interest of Vince for a big push, so on and so forth. But I think Charisma got him to the dance within the WWE, where obviously in ring he made his name. I think he doesn't, I think he has more charisma than like a character. I think he has more charisma than like a promo. Um, I just think Charisma is underrated for AJ Styles. But of course, Ricky Stimo is probably his second best feature next to in ring wrestling is charisma so i think it's an interesting case i actually think that it's closer um steamboat definitely is way more impactful as a babyface promo aj as a heel mannerisms due to his size and being being beloved he's able to get over as a heel due to his charisma um so i think it's underrated for aj but i agree that it's also a strengther steamboat so i don't know just my thoughts too i was curious what you guys thought i have i have it rather close i don't have any good dad jokes to contribute to the flat earth dunk session on uncle alan but um i think it was aaron mentioned ricky steamboat's charisma and how that parlayed him into being one of the best baby faces of all time which i would agree with if we're factoring in his wcw and nwa run but within the confines of the gwe structure that top level baby face work from steamboat that we know and love only lasts in WWE, WWE for less than a year. Um, and even that's chopped up because he, he leaves for a bit in the spring, summer of 90, or about, about 87, uh, and then comes back later in the year. So um, I lean more towards styles in the charisma department um, just because I don't think Steamboat's WWF run is really all that good. So for me, it's Steamboat's one great angle in 86, versus the totality of AJ Styles WWE run as a babyface and I think there's just too much stuff uh from AJ Styles week to week on TV um that gives him the edge charisma wise over Ricky Steamboat I think you're going off the uh cliff a little bit on that one Steamboat was more than just one great angle I mean he had Morocco was great stuff and the Jake Roberts feud too like that was really damn good as well so it's not just the Savage feud and then he leaves. Um, I mean, yes, he's not, he doesn't have the longevity of an AJ, but that's, I mean, that's just a constant debate when you compare any of these eras in dirty history, like eighties versus modern day. This is always going to be much more volume, right? I mean, we, we, we have the same debate all the time. Like Dolph Ziggler versus someone like Tito Susanna, right? Like a guy that just has decades of TV, has more TV matches in a year than some guys had in a five year dirty career. Yeah. And, for me, just trying to stick to the charisma aspect of the question, I can look at AJ Styles 2016 and beyond uh, in WWE uh, and it, pretending like I've never seen his TNA work or, or New Japan, and I can say, okay, if you're telling me that this guy is one of the best of all time, I can get that from his WWE work and the charisma that he's displayed. I can't do that with Ricky Steamboat in WWE. 
I just, I don't know. The, the charisma is lacking there for me with Steamboat. Um, and maybe that's just because I, I can't separate his WCW work because it, it's so good. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Steamboat and WWF is just lacking for me. I don't think your physical deficiencies should count as a mark against Steamboat. I don't know. If Ricky Steamboat's not breathing fire, then, like, I don't know. What are you doing for me, man? gears just a little bit. it doesn't have to end the other discussion we could we could simultaneously work these uh no the most recent no holds barred aaron and i recorded we raised the question of what's the worst wrestlemania main event instinctually i want to say miz and cena at wrestlemania 27 yeah that's the first one that popped in my head also um perhaps wrestlemania 13 sid taker might be a contender slog not much uh, at least Cena Miz kind of had the crowd a little bit and kind of got uh, a rock pop and an angle out of it. That was just kind of filler in a way. And a transitional to a transitional champ to kind of get us out of dark days. So that's kind of the where I'm at on my second whim. WrestleMania 13, Sitted Undertaker. I'm so frazzled that I thought I was talking and in, in, in recording and I wasn't even recording. I'm not going to have it an hour's worth of time. You guys dunk on Uncle Alan for for thoughts and opinions that may or may not be true. I'm trying here. But now you're going to dunk on Sid and Undertaker? I I know you guys are collectively love the past. WrestleMania 1 is hot dog water across the board. That tag team match, not very good. Um, I'm okay with... Hogan and Bundy, but I'm not putting it over Sydney Undertaker. Um, WrestleMania 4's main event is kind of trogged down. That's the word we're using. Trogged down for the tournament. And the only thing that really saves that main event for me as being more than just a match is Randy Savage picked up Miss Elizabeth and held the world title while Hulk Hogan tried to make everything about himself. The best part, I should say the best parts of Sid Undertaker are Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, and they're not even in the goddamn match. Also, Sid screaming, God damn it. I can also go with that. Not to pivot away from the previous conversations we've been having, I was just looking through TikTok. Um, yeah, I'm one of those guys has TikTok, but I don't like post because I'm an old and I don't get what kids do, but I find what the, the youth do entertaining um but it was a super clip of all of the qualifying matches from the king of the ring 98 and one of the qualifying matches was kama mustafa as a member of the nation of domination getting heel picked and put in ankle lock by ken shamrock and i'm just reminded that that was such a wasted opportunity that Ken Shamrock was never WWF champion. And so I feel like this is a, a normal conversation that happens all the time, but I don't think it's one that's happened with us. So 
over the span of history, even if it was for a day, what are some WWFE superstars that should have been champion at some point, but for whatever reason, whether it be politics or whether it be just the wrong place at the wrong time, dude, um, why they weren't champion. And for me, my number one answer is always going to be Ken Shamrock. Fuck yes, I will hear it for Ken Shamrock all day. I also vaguely remember that qualifying match. I remember Ken beating Kama Mustafa. And then on the brackets, Kama Mustafa being listed as the godfather, rather inexplicably. And then me wondering, as a 14-year-old kid at the time, who the hell is the godfather? Anyway, I think the obvious answer for this is some of like the Federation era heels, guys like, uh, you know, Roddy Piper, um, even like a heel Jake Roberts, if he had had more longevity, maybe. Um, but, you know, back then, it just wasn't a heel forward promotion. I mean, we're talking about a company that rather than strapping up Ted DiBiase or Andre the Giant after Hulk Hogan had sort of run the course after four years, it's a long time, as champion, they take the belt off him and run a convoluted tournament instead just to crown a new face champion. So had they employed a different philosophy back then, I, I think we would have seen maybe some stronger heel champions back in the day. And I think that's what maybe makes the most sense to me. Watching It's a Wonderful Life and... It's one of those movies that I always think I appreciate more than I actually enjoy. Uh, just kind of with the slow start and the general storytelling elements of a movie that's almost 80 years old at this point. Uh, so I was trying to think of like an equivalent with wrestling, uh, pro wrestling. And I was going to see if anybody could pinpoint a match that you would bring up as kind of being that bridge uh, into even the modern era or the old-time era of American wrestling. Um, I'm going to think about it and maybe come back with a couple of responses. I want to thank you for making this match possible, but there's one thing I want everybody to know, and that is, to a nicer guy, it couldn't happen. So there you have it. Buddy Rogers versus Pat O'Connor from 1961, I think, is the first match that immediately comes into mind. And uh, Buddy Rogers' line there at the end always resonates with me. He gets huge boos from the Comiskey Park crowd, and he really kind of establishes himself as not only a great kind of character heel for the time, but also the NWA champion, so someone that you had to respect as well. I don't know if I'm fully following the question. If you're saying a match that felt like it was a bridge between eras, I think one is Bret Hart, Steve Austin, the WrestleMania 13, um, <clears throat> specifically for the WWF. Like, you know, everyone always, we talk about 1996 being the year of change, but Chad, as we're watching a war zone, like it's still very bland, a lot of it. Um, they're still in the rut of the taping cycle, it still feels like, yeah, there's an edge and they're trying different things, but it, it still just feels very much like the old WF still, just a little bit more color to it. That match to me is where they made a stark decision that they were going to dramatically change the overall direction and presentation of their wrestling. 
style and program. Like it's it's a bloody war on the biggest stage. It's a massive double turn. It's a risk turning a guy. Sure, Brett was already starting to get booed a little bit, but you're turning a guy who's been your stalwart face that you just gave a huge money deal to, turning him heel uh, and give him kind of like a whiny character. And then Steve Austin, who traditionally for the history of this promotion would have been a heel all day long. And now basically, and I mean, not there quite yet, but they're pretty much positioning him as a face that'll solidify over the coming months for sure. Um, so to me, that's like, that's a dramatic total shift. Also going back to the previous conversation, I mean, I think like Shamrock, I think he just needed to, I don't, I don't even know. I, I don't want to say he left, he left too early. He also maybe came in too late. I don't know. He's such a tough one. Like, he, yes, by all accounts, he should have been a world champion, but when he's there, it's like, where, where does he win it? I mean, you can't really take it off of Sean at DX given like you need someone to pass it to Austin and it's not going to be Shamrock. Like if Brett's gone, then it's going to be Sean, who's the next biggest, hottest name and heel. And then at that point, it's like, I guess when, I mean, you could have maybe turned him sooner in 98 and have him in place of Kane, but you need kind of need a Kane there to bridge to SummerSlam with Austin Undertaker, which I wouldn't touch. That's so good. So Shamrock's next hottest stretch is Robo Shamrock at the end of 98 into early 99. But, I mean, are you really willing to sacrifice, you know, Mankind's run with The Rock during that stretch? Like, that's where Shamrock would have won it. I guess maybe you could have Shamrock win, win the tournament at Survivor Series and Rock Mankind isn't for the belt. But I don't know, you just take away so many moments. And, again, you need Rock Austin on the path to Mania. So it's a, it's such a weird time period where you feel like, yeah, like Shamrock deserved to be the guy, but it's similar to what Tim just laid out with. It just wasn't, the timing was just never right. And then he's gone at a time where maybe he could have been in the mix. Like maybe instead of Big Show at Survivor Series 99, it's Shamrock wins the bell and fuse with Triple H. Like maybe that could have been his time period. And don't get me started on Shamrock angle. Well, you know, the, uh, the truth of the matter is uh, that... Um Ken Shamrock was uh, doomed as soon as Stone Cold Steve Austin got hot. Uh, yeah, because uh, not only was Ken Shamrock a dangerous man, but um, Austin became the badass. And, uh, well, you know, that's just what happened. And he took his place. And by the next year, they had Mike Tyson in. So anyway, uh, that's, that's probably the reason why Ken Shamrock never had his shot. He's replaced by... Stone Cold Steve Austin. I appreciated that appearance from Mr. Stewart, keeping both topics alive here. But um, to hit on Shamrock uh, real quick, yeah, don't get me started on Angle Shamrock either. That's probably my number two, like, of dream matches that never happened and presumably never will. Um. But in terms of Shamrock's run, it's it's crazy because you think of him as being so ahead of his time when he debuted, but at the point when the promotion catches up to his style, it not only catches up, like it laps him very quickly. So you think maybe if he had just stuck around longer, you know, that was the issue. He could have won the title later on down the line, but think about Shamrock if he had 
if he had hung around into you know the 2000s, then he's he is going to come into conflict with Angle. We'd get some great matches. He's going to come into conflict with like all the radicals. Like he'd already his last program was against Jericho. Um, hell, you you've even got Taz. So there'd be some really great, probably awesome dream matches in there. But are any of those main event worthy? Would would any of them lead to like? A title program, I I can't really see it happening. Um, so even if he had stuck around, I I can't really see him being a part of the main event scene. And if you try to use him as a main event, you know, title contender, he would feel maybe even passe compared to those guys, which is probably unfair to him. But that was just the reality of how quickly the organization changed. You know, in in two thousand two thousand one with all the, the WCW mid-carters coming in. So it's just a crazy world and a crazy what-if. It's funny you mentioned him being passe by 2000, by the time that Angle and them are all there. When we were watching him on TNA, I think Jenny, JT, and I all liked him in TNA. But I remember at the time when he won that title thinking, oh, like... Okay. Like he felt like a castaway. Like he felt like he was done by that point. Now I wasn't watching the show and that would be proven wrong by watching the show. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I felt about it. I always thought the time to strike on Shamrock was uh, like at DX 97 and then just switch the title back at the Rumble. Uh, you don't need the Sean Taker casket match to get to Kane setting Undertaker on fire. Um, you could do that angle on Raw. You could still do it at the pay per view if you have Taker in the Rumble. Uh, there's plenty of other options to do it, and you just have uh, Triple H and, and Sean get the belt back from Shamrock at the Rumble, especially since uh, that Rumble was kind of like a hometown Rumble for Shamrock. Um, you could have done the reverse of, like, 1997 uh, Royal Rumble there. Um, I don't think there's actually any, like, real dream matches if Shamrock sticks around because the TV style is still, like, three-minute matches that end in a double DQ or a run-in. So, like, the matchups on paper are probably cool, but... I don't know, best case scenario, there's like a five-minute sprint with like him and Benoit, that would be cool. And for a match that is most like It's a Wonderful Life, my answer is going to be the Iron Man match from WrestleMania 12. I think it's very divisive, much like It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, some people have it as an all-time classic that they want to rewatch annually. Some people have seen it once. Some people have seen it a, a dozen times uh, and never want to see it again. Uh, some people can recognize its greatness um, and have it on replay. So um, I think for me, the Iron Man match is most like It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, to your point, I guess the weekly TV shows were a little bit slow to evolve into more of that style we enjoy today. Um, but I'm thinking of some of the missed opportunities, I guess, more so on pay-per-view not to get into a whole thing, but that fucking 2000 King of the Ring, looking at you. Well, and also, like, something we, no one's brought up yet, which I think is interesting, is that, you know, if he's still around, he's a really good guy to put over Brock in 2002. To have Brock just fucking steamroll him. You know what? So while we're replacing shitty Big Show title changes... Why don't we put uh, Shamrock uh, in the triple threat and Survivor Series 99 instead of Big Show. He wins the title there. That gives him a, a quick little run. And we'll also do the same thing at, look at that, another Survivor Series 2002. Brock Shamrock instead of Brock Big Show. 
switch the title, have Heyman back Shamrock. There, there's our other title change. We've given Shamrock two title reigns now. Look at us. I guess I'm not seriously advocating for this, but um, it turned out to be easier than I thought to uh, give Shamrock not just one, but two title reigns. Could we also do the thing where uh, Shamrock's dad has cancer and the big boss man starts fucking with him? And then also, could we also uh, have Ken Shamrock fight Floyd Money May Mayweather in 2008? If we could just sub in Ken Shamrock, it could be the Ken Shamrock show on Netflix. Him and his kids, he's, he's always about to snap. I mean, look, I, I think that's your storyline for that 99 title reign. Like, it's got some built-in uh, history as well with with Shamrock and Bossman as former partners, former tag team champions, in fact, now that I think about it. So, um, yeah, I think you can replace Big Show in all aspects with Ken Shamrock. You know, uh, Ken sadly crying in the locker room, confessing to D'Lo Brown that his cancer-stricken father has indeed died. Um, you know, Shamrock's mother um, being forced uh, by the big boss man to admit that uh, Ken is a bastard child. Um, really bring out a more nuanced, you know, sensitive side to Shamrock where he, he can't solve all of his problems by, by merely snapping. Sometimes you have to dive onto the coffin during your, your father's funeral as um, your arch nemesis tries to uh, haul it away. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for this. I think we need to, I think we really need to fantasy rebook this. Well, obviously, too, we're going to get Ken Shamrock on Saturday Night Live. Uh, he won't be able to hide a chair behind his back, but I don't know. I think his he might be like the least humorous host, co-host in Steven Seagal. And we might get Ken Shamrock uh, parading around as Hulk Hogan uh, at Backlash 2000. I really think we're on to something. If we could just plug Ken Shamrock into the big show's role for all of eternity. I think we're good. Like I could tolerate the Punjabi prison with Ken, with the potential of Ken Shamrock murdering someone inside. Ken Shamrock having an emotionally driven WrestleMania program about what a loser he is with a dimpled cellulite ass with Cody Rhodes. This all sounds great, but I don't think I can sign off on a universe where Ken Shamrock teams with Billy Gunn as double trouble shit on a stick. You say that, but there is more of that built-in history. I mean, Billy Gunn was the man who who dethroned Ken Shamrock as King of the Ring and, and made him bleed internally from blood condoms in his mouth. Boring, worse than bad. It's not every day that you'll catch me or anyone on the North-South Connection quoting Holy Scripture on any of the podcasts, but I feel this is timely. Um, Revelation 3, 15-17 talks about being not... Hot, either being hot or cold and not lukewarm. It is absolutely worse to be 
boring. Boring is lukewarm. It's milk toast. It's it's there is no interest in what is there. If it is bad, you can make bad better. It's easier to make bad better than it is to make boring interesting. That's my take. Yeah, that's how I feel too. Um, and it, it comes from listening to um, War, where uh, JT and Marcus are talking about the commentary and how in the end they're just boring. And I, I kept thinking like, I would rather hear Art Donovan be awful for two and a half hours or even when you go to 2011, I think Booker T is really bad on commentary, but he's so bad he kind of makes me laugh. As opposed to the trio of Cole, JBL, and Lawler, who I think they point out rightly are boring, but I think the worst thing they do in terms of boring is they sound disinterested at times. And to me, that disinterest and that malaise is so much worse than, say, a superstar Billy Graham at 88, you know? You know, stuff that we would consider bad, I still want to go back and kind of listen to a little bit. Stuff that's boring or disinterested, I'm done. I don't know why I'm in the world of parables right now, but it reminds me of the old Eddie Izzard uh, stand-up where he was talking about singing the American National Anthem and how the lyrics to the National Anthem are the least important part of the song. It's it's like 70% presentation. So even if you're doing it badly, as long as you're doing it enthusiastically, it is more entertaining. It's way better if you don't have the words, but you have the enthusiasm as opposed to just which is musically better but is just not quite right. It's about entertainment. And if being bad is more entertaining than uh, being boring, then like, yeah, I'd rather watch something that's actively bad as long as I'm being entertained. On that note, kind of, can a, do you think a, a 30 or 40 minute match can be, can be labeled two and a half, three, uh, two and a half, two and three quarter stars. My thought on this is, is that it feels like the longer a match goes, the less tolerating, the, uh, sorry, the less tolerance I have for something to be middling. So like, like a 10 minute, maybe this is way too nerdy, but like a 10 minute match can be two and a half stars, right? Because two and a half stars is middling. It's replacement level, right? Can something be replacement level at 30, 40 minutes? Does the time that you're sitting watching something replacement level start chipping away at that score? Because I think it does for me. I'd have to go back and look at all my stuff. But I, I remember distinctly like with things like, like the Sean Hunter Hell in the Cell, for example. I'm sure I'm at like one star and I'm sure it's all because of the length. Right? I'm sure it's like, well, the action's not bad, but they just keep stretching and stretching. 
See, now you're speaking my language. See, because I have a, a, a equal but opposite thought. That why does long matches have to be the ones that are rewarded for being four or five star matches? Going back to your topic of uh, the Hell in a Cell. That's a five star match per Dave Meltzer. Okay. But I would dare say that some of the better matches I've seen are short, like 12, 14 minute sprints. It doesn't have to be the Iliad. It doesn't have to be some epic in order for me to be like, ah, you know what? Five stars. That's it. It doesn't have to be this well-polished, thrice-proof-written work of art. It, 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 if it does what it needs to do, gets in and out, it captivates me, and it's rewatchable beyond anything else, I'm more apt to give it a higher star rating. Not the, not the length is better. I'm, I'm not a size queen when it comes to match, match length. Uh, not, not in the slightest. See, now you're speaking my language because I'm with you. Like, I think, I think there's a, I think longer matches can have an inherent advantage in that they have more time to tell more complex stories in the matches. So that's, that's a bit of an advantage for longer matches that they have in order to like accumulate more stars or whatever. But that being said, um, but that being said, I, look, I think short matches are just as valuable. It just depends on what the point of the match is. I think Honky Tonk Man Ultimate Warrior from SummerSlam 88 is five stars because it's absolutely perfect. I don't care that it's 30 seconds long. They nail exactly what they want to do and what they need to do. I think that uh, Owen Hart 123 Kid from King of the Ring 94 is four, right? These are really short matches. Right, but um, but it's just what does the match do, and um, does it accomplish it? So yeah, I'm on board. Oh, I absolutely think that a match, overstaying its welcome, uh, as good as it may be, if it's too long, uh, and it's unnecessary, it can definitely be below replacement level. I think I've got Gargano and Champa, the last man standing from Takeover Brooklyn Four at two and a quarter. Mechanically, it's great. It's as clean as a match you'll see from a, a time investment do i ever want to see that again nope do i ever want to watch that show again nope did i think any of that was necessary maybe half the match look i'll say this the triple h sean cell match is as bad <clears throat> regardless of length i mean the length plays a role but that's not replacement level anywhere it's just it's just a terrible match it sucks it's, I, I, that i don't ever want to watch again no i agree though uh, I've, as I've got older, basically I have less time left on this earth, but I much prefer quick sprints. Like that is definitely a hundred percent up my alley. I always bring up Goldberg, Brock Lesnar, or somebody at 33 is like the torchbearer for that. I love that match. To me, that is like, if you just give me a steady diet of those, I'm happy. Like 12 minutes, bombs, big dudes beating the shit out of each other. I think it's why I'm digging Nitro so much right now too, like in, on Wrestling Warzone. Because the matches they present are either quick cruiserweight, you know, dudes flying around, and then big Haas tag teams beating the shit out of each other, and everything's like eight minutes. So I think that's that's just where I'm at as a fan. 
let me just pull out my pen and paper here. Uh, Rewatch Goldberg Lesnar WrestleMania 33. I've got my lunch break. Gonna be the best lunch of your week. I think it's just a lot tougher for a short match to accomplish the types of things that you want to see or, or you need to see from a five-star match in the amount of time that it's given. Um, when you think of like what are some of the intrinsic qualities of a five-star match, I mean, not that there's any one template, but like broadly speaking, I think you want to see storytelling, right? That it, it's telling a story from end to end that makes sense, um, which is more or less difficult to accomplish, you know, depending on what kind of history the participants have going into it. Um, you want to see excellent in-ring work, of course, um, but work that's more importantly effective in getting across what the match is trying to accomplish. Uh, you want strong characters. I mean, that pretty much speaks for itself. Um, stakes are pretty important, right? Um, audience investment, that's another big factor. So it typically just takes a lot of time to deliver on these points. So when you have a shorter match that's able to get there, I think that's really impressive and should be rewarded as such. And my personal standard bearer for a short match that checks all the boxes, I think I've said it before, I've talked about it on Talking WCW, plug, check it out, Place to be Nation Wrestling. It is Luger and Wyndham versus Arn and Tully at Clash 1. That's like a 12-minute match. Gives me everything I could possibly want from like a genuine five-star classic, which is doubly impressive given that this is a tag team match, so you've got to make effective use of four different guys. But it absolutely gets there for me. As a follow-up to the boring versus bad conversation, I want to ask another question as fans is boring one of the worst chants in wrestling history like anytime i hear boring during a wrestling match or at a at an event and period i just i want to strangle every single fan doing it it's it's just i we don't need to hear it like stop um i know that uh we can Thanks Stone Cold Steve Austin for giving us the what chant, which might be the worst of all time. But are there other chants or cheers or, or things that are said in wrestling as fans that just make your blood boil? Um, I have others, but uh, I'll leave it up to the consortium to discuss. Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna blame Steve Austin for the what chants. I think you have to at least blame Bret Hart for the boring chance. I just recall them being all over him. And with good reason, obviously. Um, it's just another example of this group's bias. On a related note, I don't actually mind the boring chance because I find like, fuck, if they're bored, they're bored, you know? And I'm just, I'm happy if they tell us they're bored. Um, one chant I don't like is you fucked up. Um, especially when it's with something of a high degree of difficulty. Like if you're springboarding off a top rope and jumping and balancing, you fall, you fucked up isn't really warranted, you know? If you're walking up the steps to the ring and you slip and fall and, you know, fall down the stairs or when Batista, when Batista couldn't get in the ring at WrestleMania 35, 
Chant you fucked up all you want, but just be discerning. Mr. Hitman has never lost control of a crowd. You must be talking about your boy, Shawn Michaels, uh, examples, 1996 Survivor Series. That, that must be your dude. You're not talking about Bret Hart. He would never. Boring is awesome. Uh, I got no problem with that chant. And um, I think the what chant is good, minus when it's targeted at a uh, international talent speaking on the microphone. Other than that, those two chants rock. I think you deserve it might be the worst crowd chant. Because if you think somebody deserves something, you can just clap and cheer for them instead of chant. This is awesome. Both these guys are also lame. I think my number one offender of all chants is this is wrestling. Like, I have sat here and watched an hour and 45 minutes of wrestling. And you mean to tell me of everything I just watched until right now, right now we started wrestling? Shut the H up. I think any crowd response that makes me think this is an audience of trained SEALs rather than people who are having an authentic, organic response to what they're watching kind of takes me out of it. You know, it's the same way the wrestlers kind of go through these tropes that that really bother you, the stuff like um, the shocked kick-out face, the, the I'm sorry, I love you, delayed uh, knockout blow before the finish, um, all the, like, really forced Shakespeare in the park type stuff. Like, the crowd has their own version of that kind of thing and uh it just sucks whether you've seen it from the crowd or in ring i think that was like super clear uh during the pandemic era when a guy like Big E would come out and still do all of his like gyrating poses with no audience interaction like you know it's one thing to like shake your hips and make the audience scream but if you're shaking your hips to like a room full of empty people it really, for me, made the product feel like it was for babies. Like, it, without that give and take, it, there was something really off with it. And again, I, like, you know, it's funny you brought up the, the poses and stuff too. Or maybe I just thought the poses. Anyway, um, I hate when the circumstances dictate that someone should be angry or sad or upset, but they're still going through all their poses. And there's so many, like the best example I remember, I mean, there's lots, but I remember Rock at um, Survivor Series 2000. I think that's the one where he fights Rikishi, where like his music hits and he's so angry at Rikishi that he sprints out like and, and forgoes all of his poses and all of his shit. And I just feel there's like way too much Pavlovian response in terms of, okay, when I'm here, I have to do this. When I'm there, I have to do that. And the audience responds accordingly. And it's, there's times where it feels all too choreographed. I would say that that level of choreography um, is one of the blights on the Triple H NXT experience. Like he got way too, not he, but people got way too weird with needing to have their poses. Like what the fuck is Dakota Kai doing like framing her face? Like I, Like what is that? Why is she doing it? Well, I think you can look to that level of NXT and look to who everybody's favorite wrestler was that's in NXT. And everybody would probably say, ah, my favorite wrestler is Shawn Michaels. And what did Shawn Michaels love to do more than anything else? Eat abnormally long sandwiches on, in the 
the entranceway, pose for no reason, pass out from posing, you know, just to name a few. Yeah, but if you're going to do that, you should name all the times where he didn't do that. Like, good friends, better enemies when he fucking marches down to the ring with a chip on his shoulder. Like, there's a bunch of examples like that. You can't just mention what he does wrong and not mention what he does right. He's not someone who does everything wrong. He's not Bret Hart. Marcus, I tried. Get him. Look, I'll say. I'll, I, won't, I won't completely deny that Shawn Michaels is responsible in some ways. But I think really it falls at Triple H. I think he's definitely more of the pose no matter what variety. Whereas Michaels could change it up every now and then. But I think it starts with Triple H and it really... It really kind of flows downhill from there with him. That is 1,000% a uh, Triple H staple. I love that this discussion has broken down into a Sean versus Brett fight. And to sort of tie this whole topic back to the original premise, you know, the, the, the virtues of long matches versus short matches, you know, how about that Brett versus Sean Iron Man match, 60 minutes? Uh, somebody ought to break that down one day, right? I never have to watch the Iron Man match again, I'd be the happiest man in the world. Mm -hmm.